Welcome to Off The Grid Radio. Better ideas to bust you and your family out of today's global control grid. Now, here's today's show. Hi, welcome to another edition of Off The Grid Radio. I'm Michael Faust of OffTheGridNews.com. Today's guests are Danny Whittle and Sujin Hines, a married couple who live in Alaska. And you have stories of survival that many of us see only on television. They're also friends of Off The Grid News. We enjoyed ha- having them on the program so much a couple of years ago that we wanted to have them back. Danny and Sue Jean, welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Thanks, Michael. Where, where in Alaska do you guys live, and what's the temperature there today? Well, right now it's about minus 15, uh, give or take a degree. And um, uh, we're roughly... Uh, located on the Alaska Highway, um, uh, halfway between Toke and Delta Junction. That's uh, uh, 109 miles between the two, so we're roughly halfway between there. Okay. Well, in term- I'm sorry, I didn't mean to talk over you, Danny. In terms of the temperatures, what, what's, what's the worst temperature that you've had there this winter so far, and what does the forecast look like? It's minus 15 today. The worst forecast, oh. the worst temperature we've seen so far this year is minus 25. In previous winters, we've been down below minus 60. Wow, wow. What about snow? This year is a great snow year. We're looking at, um, we've got had over two foot on the ground, and uh, that's a big difference for us because last summer or last winter, the snow didn't come before the cold came. And uh, when there's some kind of a formula for however cold the temperature is, how fast it goes down into the ground and freezes the ground. And I understand the permafrost comes up from underneath the ground and they kind of meet in the middle. And it froze up our septic tank. Our whole septic field last year was one big because we didn't have any snow. So this year we have over two foot and we've got it piled up all around the house for added insulation this year as a free benefit. So you want the snow to come early then. Is that the thinking? Absolutely. We want snow first and then cold because yeah. the snow makes a big difference in in our temperatures. It even helps on the roof. Mm-hmm. We like the snow on the roof right now. We've got about 10 inches on the roof, okay. and that's really holding the heat in on our house, and we've got it packed up around the house, three foot up the walls, all the way around the house. What about the... the, the the winters there in terms of uh, how many hours of dark you have because uh, you're you're not as far north uh, as some people in Alaska but you're still far enough north that uh, you're you're you know the number of hours you get are more than the average person in the lower 48 so how many how many hours of dark do you have right now right now I would guess about um, 18 to 20 hours of darkness okay uh, sun, sun came up this morning uh, over the mountain uh, for us at about uh, 11.45, and it'll disappear behind the mountains at about 1, one thirty, something like that. And does uh, it... The, the kind of uh, indirect light we'll have for about four hours, maybe uh, five hours during a day, so that would be about between 18 to 20 hours of darkness. And so um, this is one of those uh, sunrises that doesn't go across the sky, but just kind of comes up and goes along the horizon. Is that what we're talking about, or does it... Uh... I'm just trying to ask for a description. We live across the Alaskan Highway from the um, the, ma- the ridge that starts the Alaskan Range, the Alaskan Mountain Range, and the sun that's to the east, of, that's to the west of us, and the sun comes up uh, at the southwest 
corner of the ridge, and it makes a small loop across the top of the ridge for about a half a mile, and then okay. it goes down behind the ridge. So <laughs> most of our sunlight is happening on the other side of the Alaska mountain range, which is miles and miles and miles to the west of us. <laughs> Tell us about what it's like living there in winter. Is it something that you hate? Is it something you tolerate? Uh, are there some blessings that most people would not see unless they're looking? What, what do you think about living uh, in, uh, in, in winter in Alaska? Well, I like it. I, I, I think winter in Alaska is a time for you know, our indoor, indoor pursuits. I quilt. I write. So I'm happy in the winter. Um, I don't mind the darkness. But uh, some people, other people, <laughs> other people here have a different opinion. And that would be that would be Danny, and I'm probably a little bit in Danny's corner here. So Danny, you're you're you're, you're wishing you had some light. She has me cornered on that one. I'm slapping me on the shoulder here. <laughs> uh, I'll just preface my statement, uh, my comments by saying that um, I lived in Phoenix, Arizona, for almost 40 years. So what I'm enduring up here is um, uh, diametrically opposed to that 40 years experience. Um, although I will say that uh, uh, I have grown accustomed to it. Uh, there are when, when you live in a place uh, that's like this, you have to uh, um, accommodate yourself, right? That's I, the best word I can think of right now. Mm -hmm. um, you just have to get used to it and find other... Uh, other avenues of interest and stuff like that, uh, um, you know, uh, uh, beaches, palm trees, and golf courses uh, are out of the question here in Alaska. As a matter of fact, the closest golf course to me is 160 miles north here in, uh, in Fairbanks. Interesting. And I can only do that, of course, in the summertime. Yeah. Um, but um, uh, I've, I've grown accustomed uh, to this. Uh, I've learned how to... Um, Actually, I've become quite a lumberjack and a mountain man uh, <laughs> in the seven years we've been here. Uh, that doesn't mean that I want to stay here for 40 years, but um, uh, that's just my opinion of it. Um, no, I... it's it's beautiful country. It's uh, uh, it's quiet. Uh, it's uh, secluded um, and uh, quite private, and uh, that much I enjoy. It's far better than in a major major city yeah I can see the I can see the blessings and uh, the the negatives and the curses whatever you would want to call them uh, of living up there it's something that I would want to uh, enjoy certainly and let's talk about how you guys stay warm because since we've last spoke we last spoke I think a couple of years ago you guys have a have a new wood stove um, tell us about that new wood stove and, and how it's beneficial to uh, to your off-grid life well our new wood stove was made for us by a man in Toke, and he made it from a hot water heater, a 20-gallon hot water heater, and it's uh, thin-walled steel. It's not um, heavy like our old cast-iron stove, and he said that a lot of people have the idea that you need a really heavy, thick-walled cast-iron stove to stay warm, but unfortunately, um, our old cast-iron stove didn't keep us warm. I don't understand, I don't know how to explain the differences, but our new stove um, uses less wood, and we get more heat, and we get a better a better burn at night, so we're not having to get up every hour to put wood in the stove. We can put 
wood in the stove and sleep for three or four hours at, at a time. And we've got this um, set up with uh, a lot of rock. We used rock from all over the world from our travels that we collected up to build um, old rocks around walls on two sides of it. Hmm. And around the base of the stove, we put in a lot of extra rock to act as a heat sink. So it, when the walls are warm, you can put your hands on the, on the walls but that heat stays in there, and, and it acts as a heat sink, and so it really keeps our house a lot warmer. And then when we hit minus 10 below, we also have a pellet stove that's um, in, an, in another part of the house, and we use that to kind of balance out the heat from the wood stove because the wood stove doesn't... Our, our living room has got a high ceiling and everything, and the two bedrooms there, that's where the wood stove really benefits, but the... Public service heating the kitchen in the back of the house, and then we also have an upstairs bedroom that I use for a quilting room. And so um, the pellet stove keeps everything from freezing up. And we had a, a really bad lesson last year when we went away in February about thermal mass, and and we really didn't understand thermal mass until we went away for a month in our house. We we managed to plan our vacation. Fortunately, during a time when we had oh, more than a week, two weeks of minus 40 below. Mm. And it was it was a, a real challenge for the people here. Um, people ended up with uh, $600, $300 for electric bills and stuff because that they were running extra heat and everything. But uh, our house was so cold when we got back from our trip that it took us two days running both stoves at full blast to get the house where we weren't standing around in our coats shivering. And, and it was it was pretty scary for us because that first day we thought we were going to come home, start a fire in the wood stove, start up the pellet stove, and then everything was going to be back to normal. And unfortunately, that night we went to bed with five quilts on top of us in our clothes, and we laid there and shivered all night. The thermal mass of the house was so cold. Our water lines froze up, busted up the, the water filter system. Um, the wax ring on the toilet froze up, and it just busted to pieces. And we learned a whole lot of things about the cold that the floor um, buckled uh, in our kitchen. The, the vinyl all buckled. And uh, we spent the early part of this last summer making all the repairs from going away from home for a month. So there's a lot of preparation work if you're not going to be here keeping the fires going to keep your house from from basically falling apart while you're gone. So we learned a lot. Of, we learned a very difficult lesson last year. Wow, wow. And I should say uh, that uh, we'll talk more about that, the, the damage from that in a moment here. I should say that there is a video on Sue Jean's website, which is... Um, which you've made, uh, it's about the, it shows the wood stove and the rock wall. And I believe that video is at your website, which is tsiyonbound.blogspot.com, tsiyonbound.blogspot.com. Let's take a quick break, guys. When we return, we'll continue our conversation with Danny and Sujin. We'll talk about uh, the, 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 some, a bear incursion that they had last winter. We'll also talk about the uh, pipes freezing and the septic tank freezing up and how they uh, overcame all of that. We'll be right back.
Finally, in the news this evening, it's being reported that cyber spies from Russia and China have now penetrated our power grid. Even as energy experts are reporting that each summer we get closer and closer to the limits of our nation's power grid, some say that this summer's demand for electrical power may finally push the grid over its edge, creating a cascade of power outages across the country, putting us all in the dark. Are you prepared for the next round of storm-related outages or government-created blackouts? Have you ever thought about taking steps to get off the grid and generate your own private supply of electrical power? If so, this will be the most important information you have ever heard. Solar-powered generators are finally available. They have no moving parts to wear out or break and require absolutely no gas whatsoever. Remember, the government doesn't own the sun. So go to MySolarBackup.com. That's MySolarBackup.com. Check out MySolarBackup.com before you lose your power. Off the Grid News, because you want a different paradigm. Danny and Sejin, let's uh, let's continue our conversation and talk about, you know, you said a minute ago when you came back from your trip to Israel uh, where it was minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit when you were gone and caused some damage to your house, and then it took a long time to get the heat, the, the temperature in the in the house up to a livable temperature. What did you do about water for the rest of the, of the winter? Well, what we do is um, I, I store about 50 gallons of water in individual gallons, and then I store some larger containers of water to keep the toilet running. Because if we don't keep water running through the septic system, it will freeze up. So we have to and then what we also do is we bring in snow in five-gallon buckets, and we set the snow. Then we set the buckets around the house, and I've got copper pipes that I set in the middle of the buckets to draw water or draw heat down into the snow and melt it. And we use that for toilet flushing water. But um, the with the damage we had last winter, what we ended up doing was we have a also have a composting toilet that we use that we used, and uh, that got us through the rest of, of last winter. And right now, um, this year, for some reason, our pipes are freezing up at minus 10 below. Our water pipes freeze up from the well, which is under the house. And so what we're having to do is uh, use our stored water. And then when the, when the temperature gets back over zero degrees, the pipes thaw out again. And see, we have um, these uh, flex pipes called flexi pipes, and... They're made out of this kind of plastic material, so they don't break the, the pipes under the house, and they uh, they thaw out, and they start working again, and the pump starts working again. So it's kind of a, a cycle of freeze and thaw, freeze and thaw, and we use up all our stored water, and then we melt snow until it thaws out, and then we get back and refill all of the stored water again. We've been we've done this cycle three times this winter already. Mm-hmm. Three times already we've, we've had... And the pipes are frozen right now as we speak. But um, we deal with it. Uh, we have water in, in pots on top of the wood stove and the pellet stove. Okay. And so we always have hot water. And we um, have plenty of stored water and then melting snow. It's not as efficient as one would hope. A five-gallon bucket gives you less than a gallon of actual water. But it keeps things going, and in you adapt. I mean, one of the things that we've learned to do very well is adapt. Uh, we need water for the pet, 
we have a dog and a cat, we need water for cooking, we need water for cleaning and personal care. And then we also use a lot of water because the dryness of the cold, as soon as you get below zero, it starts sucking the moisture out of everything. So we have to put water in the air constantly. And we put more than a gallon, probably two gallons of water a day just into the air so that we're comfortable. Otherwise, we can't, you know, we're getting shocked electrically shocked all the time and our noses dry out and our mouths dry out and you know your lips crack and everything and it's just because the cold sucks the water out of everything really fast let's talk about cooking uh, because winter presents challenges for cooking you've told me before the show you said if it gets you said if it gets minus 20 fahrenheit you you can't buy propane and when it gets minus 30 fahrenheit it's not safe to cook uh, or to use the stove um I guess one question people are going to have is, why can't you buy propane at minus 20 and why can't you cook at minus 30? What's what's the problem there? Minus 20, when you go to the propane filling stations, they won't come out and fill it. It's just, the flow is not not good. And so they, you have to, we have to plan. If we're going to go to town and we need propane, we have to plan to go on a day when it's going to be above minus 20. And then when we buy propane, we have... Uh, 25 gallon tank. We have a 20 gallon tank that we use. 20 pound tank, sorry, that we use for our stove, and it's outside because you can't have propane in the house. It's not safe. And so our stove runs off of propane, and at 30 below, it it gets it doesn't flow at all. Hmm. And so if I if I turn on the stove, it could explode or spray propane out out in, in the kitchen. So when I get to 30 below, I have to either cook on the wood stove or I have to cook on the in the microwave. So I always have to consider my meal planning around the temperature outside and, and what, I, what, what the conditions are for cooking. Fascinating. Danny, now you had a hunting trip, a hunting trip uh, last, uh, last summer that was fun and adventurous, but also... A little scary. Tell us, tell us about that. And um, well, uh, I, it was an adventure of a lifetime. I've never done that before. And uh, uh, I think the last time I went hunting um, uh, was back when I was uh, like about eleven or twelve or thirteen years of age, and I went with my dad. But this time, my son, who is an avid outdoorsman and hunter, uh, just had this thing in his mind. He wanted to bag an Alaska grizzly. <laughs> uh, Apparently, in the in the western Colorado, they don't have grizzly bear. They have a lot of a ton of black bears, but no no grizzlies. At least that's what he's tell, he's was telling me. But we have grizzly all over the place up here, um, including tons of black bear. But uh, he came up here uh, at the very end of um, that was the best week we could get. Or was the very last opening um, in late September and flowed over into the. Uh, a couple days into October, we were flown out of Tope, uh, uh to a place just just west of the uh, Canadian border, uh, but uh, east of uh, Fairbanks, and a place called Yukon Charlie. And it's a huge national preserve. Um, and uh, I had a caribou tag. He had a grizzly tag. And um, uh, we went out there, and we spent six days. That includes the... Uh, Two days of travel, uh, a full day coming and going uh, from the place, um, 
and uh, the four days of hunting, it was a uh, yeah, and a little, and we had to go out there uh, uh, one at a time because it was a, a little Piper Cub, and it had just uh, one seat in the back behind the pilot. So we got out there, and there was no landing strip. We just landed on the tundra, um, and it was huge, huge river rock that the guy landed on, but he's got uh, balloon tires that would, uh, you know, uh, like some of the, about the size of some of these uh, big old uh, uh, high-pull trucks or whatever you see. Wow. But uh, uh, he landed on those rocks, and um, he, uh, uh, with the help of my son, he turned the, uh, uh, turned the, uh, they picked up the tail of the, of the aircraft and just turned it around by hand. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he took off again downhill uh, over those rocks, and uh, uh, it was amazing to watch. But um, long story short, uh, uh, by that time of the year, uh, late September, early October can be very nasty, especially uh, out in the uh, wilderness area uh, where you know it can really get nasty. Um, but our temperatures, um, with the exception of one day, uh, were in the uh, uh, mid to upper 30s. Uh, on the third day out there of our hunting, we uh, had a little snow. We got about an inch to an inch and a half, something like that. Um, and uh, uh, but the net, uh, this last day, when the uh, pilot came back to get us, sunshine about 35 to 40 degrees, and um, uh, he flew us in. Uh, he flew in, got us all out of there, along with uh, um, our, our booty, um, and we were very successful. We were told that. Uh, uh, going in that uh, most uh, hunters, maybe about half of the hunters that go in, uh, they never come back out with what they're looking for. Um, huh. But we, uh, I got my boo, uh, my son got his bag of grizzly, and uh, we got a bonus, uh, pulled, uh, pulled down a wolf who was trying to uh, uh, partake of his final meal at the, uh, uh, the bear carcass. Um <laughs> So we were very, very successful, flew out, uh, and we've got a freezer full of caribou meat now. That's awesome. That, that's the story. Uh, that's the kind of story that I would I would like to sit down on a couch on a, in front of a fireplace and ask you twenty questions. But we can't do that. <laughs> but let me ask you about wildlife because uh, you guys you talk uh, about. Talk I, I could keep you here for about a two hour interview if you wanted to hear about. <laughs> we I wish we could. We we don't need to do that. Let's talk about. Let's keep talking about wildlife though because you guys had a bear on your property. I think uh, last summer, didn't you? Well, this. This past summer was the summer of the bears in Alaska. I, we had several um, deadly attacks at the beginning of the summer um, throughout the state, and it, it was um, it, it was very unusual um, the way the bears were acting this year. And we've this is, we've never seen bears on our property. We've got a 25-pound dog that's a sheep herding dog with an attitude that this is her property. And nobody comes on without permission. And she chases the moose around. She chases all the rabbits around. She chases all the stray dogs away. Well, this year, this summer, this bear showed up, and he's about 400 pounds. Something like that. Some about 400 pounds. Like, there's pictures of him on the blog. And he just decided that he was our neighbor, and he was going to come and visit. So Danny looks out the window one day as he's getting ready to go outside, and there's a bear just right outside the window. And uh, he went outside and yelled at it, and the bear took off running like crazy. And then uh, a few days later, the bear shows up again, and the dog, we look out, and the dog is, is actually chasing 
this bear across the yard, like, wah, 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 just biting on his rear end, and uh, the bear's running away, and we're yelling at the dog, and <laughs> and we wow. we have it. The, the laws say we can shoot the bear if the bear's a threat, but you don't want to shoot the bear because you have to prove it's a threat. It's a big hassle. It's a big problem. And then a few days later, the bear showed up again, and our dog had him run it up a tree, and here, and Danny's out yelling at the dog, yelling at the bear, and the bear's like up the tree, down the tree, up the tree, and then runs off. But that bear plagued us for like two months. Something like this. Just kept. It was three times over two months. It was just kept wow. appearing in, in the yard and stuff, and and we don't like to go outside. Well, you, we're armed. You have to be armed because the bears can be a threat. But then you don't want to shoot the bear, and then. <clears throat> Yeah. Well, I might add in there that I now have a, a, a black bear tag uh, for the state of Alaska, which is good until the spring, So, uh, and it can be renewed. And being a senior citizen and a, uh, um, and a resident, uh, I get it for free. So awesome. um, I've got a bear tag, so I'm legal. If the guy shows up again, um, all i got to do is uh, just tell a fishing game that, uh, uh, you know, I was, I was hunting. <laughs> That's... We, don't, we don't hunt bear. We wouldn't eat a bear here. Um, we wouldn't eat a bear anyway, but um, it's not it's not something we don't like shooting the wildlife. We yeah. like enjoying the wildlife, but we also don't like the threat of yeah. walking up on a bear, or, you know, walking around the corner right. of the house and suddenly there's a bear standing there. You don't like to be eaten by wildlife. I think we, sh- we should point that out. That's... Yeah, that's probably the most. <laughs> appropriate thing. Yeah, we definitely do not want to be eaten by a bear. <laughs> Our time is about up here. Um, what, what, do you have any advice for people who are considering living in Alaska who, you know, have a dream of, of living in, in that state? Well, in the summertime, we meet a lot of people who come up here and they're driving around in the state and they're saying, oh, Alaska is wonderful. We really want to live here. And, and we kind of look at them with a raised eyebrow because we have nine months of winter and three months of summer, and the majority of our summer is spent preparing for the winter. I mean, it is almost constant cutting firewood and doing stuff to the house to make it prepare for you know make it prepared for the winter. So I think people, if they really want to live in Alaska, they need to come up here and spend a month in this winter because it's it's not like winter in the lower 48. It's sustained winter for nine months. It's cold. It's life-threatening. I mean, we're out here in the bush, and if our if there's something wrong, if we have a chimney fire or something, there's no fire department. There's no emergency services. It takes three hours for my truck to be able to be started when it's plugged in on a, on a block heater and stuff. So, you know, if we had an emergency and we had to go somewhere fast, there's no fast, and there's nowhere to go. I mean, we're out in the middle of nowhere, so it's you really have to deal with a lot of mental preparations to come and live up here in this kind of weather, in this kind of winter, and know that you're on your own all the time. I mean, if you have an emergency, you have to deal with it. If the pipes break, you have to fix it. There's no one to call. There's no plumbing service. There's no electrical service. If the power goes out, it's out. You know, so you have to have your your backup systems in place. It's not just oh, let's go live in Alaska, unless yeah. you're going to live in the cities, of course. But that's not where we live. What did you say? How long does it take to start your car, your, your vehicle? It takes. If it's at minus 10, I have to have it plugged into a block heater for a minimum of three hours. 
if I don't, it won't start properly. There's no oil in the in the cylinders, so the pistons and stuff are clanging and banging and ripping up the cylinder walls. It's very it, it's very bad for your truck. Hmm. You, can, you can destroy the engine in a matter of minutes. <clears throat> about that well our, we've been speaking with uh, Danny and Sue Jean uh, Danny Whittle and Sue Jean Hines uh, they um, they have a blog uh, tsiyonbound.blogspot.com they are friends of Off the Grid News and uh, we always enjoy talking to them Danny and Sue Jean uh, we'll talk to you next time we always uh, we always uh, enjoy the stories of survival and you always give us tips and I know people enjoy hearing your stories thanks so much for joining us thank you thank Michael. you very much Mike as a reminder, people can visit offgridnews.com for the best off-grid and homesteading advice you'll find anywhere. You can visit our how-to section where you can learn everything from how your ancestors stayed warm to how to grow vegetables during winter. With Engineer Gavin Wright, this has been Michael Faust. Please join us again next week for another edition of Off-Grid Radio.